Today on the Bill Kelly podcast, what we know so far about the strong mayor legislation for Toronto and Ottawa, it will be a major change in municipal politics for those cities. We talk with Global's Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello. What's going on with the Hells Angels and why are they gathering en masse around Toronto? Netflix is trying to stop subscriber loss and password sharing. And are Kells getting a special honour? The Bill Kelly podcast starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. City councils in both Toronto and Ottawa, not to mention political scientists, are trying to figure out what the new strong mayor powers proposed by the Ford government will actually mean. There appears to be some confusion within the Ford cabinet. We heard yesterday one of the justifications was to move quickly on the affordable housing crisis. Here's Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark. The Premier and I are, are both of the same mind. We need to make sure that especially in major cities, that uh, those mayors and those councils have the tools that they need to get shovels in the ground and help me with the housing crisis. But we also heard that um, Premier Doug Ford seemed to not actually be on the same page. Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello caught up with him. Can you help me understand, though, so what is it about the current makeup of council right now that's preventing affordable housing from being built in your view? Uh, I, didn't, I don't remember regarding affordable housing. But uh, it's just uh, any, any decision, he has to hold that responsibility. We're going to work hand-in-hand hand, uh, with attainable and affordable housing. I think we need both. The powers likely to be granted to the mayors include things like say over budgets, veto powers, as well as other executive decisions like hiring of senior staff. Joining us now is Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello. Thanks for joining us again, Colin. Thanks for having me, Shona. <laughs> so much for summer being a slow time at Queen's Park. Yeah, you know, not with the Ford government. Uh, When they were first uh, re-elected in 2018, it was an incredibly busy summer, and this is shaping up to be another busy summer as well. Um, We've got a five-week legislative session coming up, and we're all getting the sense that this is going to be gangbusters, that they're going to be tabling a lot of legislation and getting a lot of bad stuff out of the way early. Well, this is a major shift in municipal power. Definitely. We've never really had this system of government before. Um, Right now, a lot of city councils operate where the power is distributed almost equally among the city councillors and the mayor. The mayor is just one of, uh, you know, however many votes uh, that uh, city council actually has. So the the mayor doesn't actually have any special uh, power, even though they are elected kind of on a, on a separate uh, a ticket almost. So what the premier wants to do is give the mayor of Toronto and Ottawa for now as a start these increased powers so they could have approval over the budget, as an example. Uh, but most consequently, they would be able to veto city council decisions. So we're not exactly sure how this power could be used or what the parameters would be. In other jurisdictions as well, in Winnipeg, for instance, uh, the mayor there has some strong mayor powers given to him by city council. um, And the mayor there has about 30 days or so to veto something, but it's a 30-day time limit. So they're basically sending it back to city council to say, hey, take a second look at this. So we don't know exactly what this legislation or those veto powers will look like here in Toronto, but a veto power has never, uh, you know, been part of the mayor's repertoire before. Well, if this is about speeding up work on the affordable housing crisis, well, that's a crisis everywhere. And other mayors like the mayors of Hamilton and London, they're going to want the same thing. 
I think a lot of mayors. So there was a big city mayor's um, council that had a, uh, issued a statement yesterday, basically saying that they were looking for more information, but they were largely supportive of these kinds of powers that would allow them to push through legislation that would speed up uh, certain things like affordable housing. But the thing is, I mean, the, the, the government is putting this in the context of affordable housing. But the premier said yesterday very clearly that the mayor is ultimately the one who's held responsible for a lot of the decisions that come out of city council. So therefore, the mayor should hold a little bit more power if he's going to be held responsible for everything. So uh, I'm not sure if this is largely because of affordable housing or not. And the other question is, well, in the city of Toronto, as an example, we've had the same mayor for the last eight years, yet, you know, affordable housing hasn't really been one of his top agenda items. So why now all of a sudden does he need new powers? And, you know, why has city council all of a sudden been the barrier to building affordable housing um, in, in, in Toronto? That's something that we haven't really had an answer to just yet. Well, and while they're using affordable housing, which is a crisis right now, it's something that's uh, certainly front and center in the minds of a lot of people. This change, this power shift is going to have ripple effects well beyond that. Well, the big question for a lot of city councillors is, you know, does their voice now matter as much as it did before this decision was made? Right. You can't have a weak mayor without having a weakened council, because that's what happens. The concentration of powers is happening within the mayor's office, but it's you know being stripped away a little bit from city council. There will be some checks and balances. So as an example, city council, two thirds of them can outweigh the mayor. If the mayor makes a decision, two thirds of city council can veto the mayor. But that means that the mayor really needs just, you know, 40 percent of council to be on his side. And, you know, council would never be able to veto anything he does. They would need about 66 percent of of the entire city council um, to vote in favor of vetoing the mayor. So it is a very complicated procedure. And we don't know exactly how this will be used. Will it just be used for affordable housing? If there is a city councillor, as an example, whose community is staunchly against a project for whatever reason, well, can the mayor just ram that through using his now new executive powers? So we don't know how this is going to play out. Um, And what if you have a mayor like we had with Rob Ford, as an example, who obviously had a lot of scandals in the city of Toronto? Um, His his powers were weakened by city council. Is there going to be that check and balance if we have that kind of, um, you know, controversy and chaos in a city again? Those are questions that the government just doesn't have any answers to. We're speaking with Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello. Um, This is going to happen because Doug Ford has a majority. He also has precedent in his back pocket for making big changes to municipal structure. Yeah, not only is it going to happen, it's going to happen within the next few weeks. Think about it. This, This is the biggest change to come to the city of Toronto you know, since 2018, and it's going to be implemented in a matter of weeks before the election, which is set to happen in October. Speaking of 2018, you might remember Doug Ford decided unilaterally during the election to cut down the size of Toronto City Council from what was going to be 47 councillors down to 25 city councillors. It caused a lot of, uh, you know, chaos in the system because city councillors had to run against one another. um, And you know, a lot of good members were gone um, and it really did create a lot of legal issues as well between the city and the province. So it's 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 really deja vu for the city of Toronto, city of Ottawa as well, because they're dealing with these 
massive changes just before an election brought in by a government that didn't run on this in the last election, didn't mention this during the election campaign and, and you know, had no signals at all that this was part of their intention. And, and we don't really know all of the information about this because the legislative session resumes or, or starts on August the 8th. We haven't actually seen uh, the draft of this legislation yet. No. And the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing said yesterday that he was consulting. Consulting with whom? Because a lot of the city councillors were completely dumbfounded by this news yesterday. Uh, the premier acknowledged that he did have a conversation of this with about this with the mayor of Toronto. But, you know, you can't really consult with a person who would be benefiting from having these powers. You know, the province does have a duty to consult. So what about the constituents in all of those uh, wards in the city of Toronto and in Ottawa? What about the city councillors themselves? Um, you know, the NDP has asked, why, why doesn't the province commission some kind of a study to see whether this is a feasible you know, have public consultation and what this um, could look like. Because si- Toronto and Ottawa are both going to be pilots, and it could be rolling out to Hamilton and other cities in the next few years as well. Yeah, I also find it interesting that it could be coming into effect before the election at the end of October. I mean, we're going to have the lame duck portion um, of a city council in Toronto and Ottawa um, leading up to the municipal elections themselves. Uh, Jim Watson is leaving. He's not running for re-election as mayor anyway. Um, and uh, so it, it, the timing of this and it landing at that point... I'm really surprised it would make more sense if it comes into effect with the new council. Uh, apparently, we've yeah. I mean, go ahead. Sorry about that, Sean. No, this is going to be this is going to be a dramatic change for the next uh, Toronto City Council and for all councils and and for local municipal politics in Ontario. Uh, basically, you know, the city councillors will form the legislative branch where they create uh, bills or policy measures and they send it to the mayor and the mayor's you know, responsible for approving or declining or vetoing those uh, pieces of, you know, a completely different dynamic. And unfortunately, between now and October, there isn't enough time for constituents to really understand what this is going to look like. Typically, when you have these huge changes to how government works, you take it to a referendum and, and people will have their say on whether or not you want to change policy. So for example, when Ontario wanted to think about whether or not we were going to have a mixed member proportional system or the current first-past-the-post system for elections, there was a referendum under Dalton McGuinty, and most people chose the status quo, and so the status quo remained. Um, unfortunately, the people of Ontario, the people of Toronto, and the people of Ottawa will have zero say in what their local government is going to look like, and it's all coming from, you know, really two people, Doug Ford and John Tory, who made this decision behind closed doors, it seems. Well, it's going to make the coming municipal election very interesting, not only because uh, this is going to land in those first two municipalities of Ottawa and Toronto, but it will also uh, could impact uh, the amount of power that mayors at other major cities are given in the near future. Colin, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got to run. My pleasure. Thanks, Shona. Uh, We've been speaking with Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello with regard to the strong mayor's legislation that's going to come into effect uh, sooner rather than later. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hell's Angels are gathering north of Toronto for Canada Run 2022 over the next several days, but their presence will be felt starting in about 90 minutes or so. Here's Tina Trajani of Global News. This procession will inevitably cause traffic disruption in our city. And that's why Superintendent Scott Baptist has asked people to avoid the southbound parkway from the 401 between 11 and noon, and again between 5 and 6 headed northbound. He says the procession route will take the estimated 800 to 1,000 bikers to an address on Carlaw between eastern in Lakeshore, and there will be some road closures in that area. We have no information to indicate that they intend to do anything other than participate in the memorial ride, followed by a gathering in the city. Superintendent Baptist stressing this is a separate event from those planned for the weekend in Durham Region, and that public safety as well as traffic flow are main concerns. There are going to be many police officers in the area. We have a command post set up in the area, and we're going to be monitoring it. Tina Trajani, Global News. Joining us now is Stephen Matelski, a professor of criminal psychology at Mohawk College and author of Undercover Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. Steve, thanks for your time. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, I'm assuming this ride today is in memory of Mom or Maurice Boucher. Yeah, absolutely. I would put a lot of weight into that. And as well, even on uh, more of an international level in the United States, just a few weeks ago, the actual founding member of the Hells Angels, Sonny Barger, died as well. So I think it would probably be a little bit of both, actually. Yeah. Um, for people who don't uh, may not be familiar with Montbouchet, he was in prison for a very long time. So he may have dropped off uh, the radar. He was a president of the Hells Angels. He was. And one misconception people have is when these criminals go to jail, uh, typically it's not the end of their their criminality, their their crime sprees. You know, Mamboucher was still committing. Uh, you know, he conspired to, to have another mobster in Montreal murdered through uh, communications with his daughter. And that was up until 2018. So just because they go to jail uh, with the technology, with couriers, with messages, a lot of these criminals, especially in the higher echelon of these criminal organizations, still really do have a grasp on the territory they once controlled prior to going to prison. Yeah, and, and so people know, uh, Mamboucher died of cancer, uh, which he had been battling for some time, and he died a couple of weeks ago. The biker gang actually has been in touch with uh, Toronto police about this ride. They have contacted the Toronto police. Yeah, they, because they wanted the routes and they wanted police uh, to at least be aware of what was going on. Yeah, and you know, these runs typically, when you look at like uh, an outlaw motorcycle gang such as uh, the Hells Angels, um, these you rarely will see them in uh, unity wearing their gang colors, their leather cuts, the vests with the insignia on the back, the, the bottom rocker, the top rocker. It's these memorial runs. Uh, Friday the 13th are very big. You'll see, especially in southern Ontario, greater Toronto area, you know, a, a big sort of uh, biker run out to Port Dover. Uh, The other big thing um, is, you know, if a member dies, funerals, that's when you'll see them in their colors. But they have really, uh, they're a worldwide organization and they've really evolved. You know, when you look at the visibility when when they're doing a ride such as this, it's it's obvious who they are because, you know, the tattoos, the the leather vests, but they've really, aside from these events uh, during the year uh, that are very sporadic now, um, you know, you typically see more of an evolution of, you know, the driving vehicles, suits, uh, losing the beard, sort of that stigmatic, stereotypical biker look. 
Well, uh, this is Canada Run 2022 this weekend. It's uh, in a smaller community near Whitby called Brooklyn. What is the purpose? I think this is a show of unity. Again, the fact that they've contacted the police, you know, they probably themselves want it to be a safe run. You know, riding a motorcycle uh, is not as safe as a motor vehicle. Um, but this is a show of unity. You know, it's all across Canada. There's There are many of the chapters, not only in Canada, but like I said, worldwide. And, you know, the fact that uh, I really think, you know, aside from highway traffic offenses, um, you know, they're just getting together to, you know, a, a show of unity. And, and it's very evident with the way they've reached out and contacted authorities to sort of let them know that, you know, we need the roadways cleared because there's going to be several hundred, if not into over a thousand. We're speaking with Stephen Matelski, author and criminal psychology professor at Mohawk College, about the Hell's Angels Gathering and Memorial Ride. That ride, as I mentioned, is going to start probably in about uh, 90 minutes or so. Is there any significance to this gathering happening in this area and now? Um, because there has been some mafia infighting, the murders of the Musitano brothers in the last couple of years in Hamilton, uh, an associate of theirs, Grant Norton, being found murdered in London. Um, are they sensing some kind of a, a power vacuum and they want to kind of, you know, flex their muscles? Well, I can tell you, when you look at the track record, I, I refer to it not as organized crime. It's transnational organized crime because long gone are the days where you had just the outlaw motorcycle gangs working on their own you know asian organized crime working on their own italian organized crime for at least the last 20 30 years and we see this more and more especially the outlaw motorcycle gangs and the italian mob they've been working uh, cohesively together uh, for decades Uh, really started with sort of the movement in quebec with vito rizzuto you know getting all the different types of gangs together to say Let's let's not fight each other. Let's we all have one thing in common. We don't like the government. Uh, and the other thing we have in common is we want to make money. So let's not attract all this attention and heat by infighting with each other. But if you look at southern Ontario right now, especially kind of Hamilton as being one of the big epicenters of Italian based mafia, you know, the Musitano crime family is is basically the namesake is gone since Pat's murder and Angelo. And, you know, you look, the Patelias have been gone since the 90s and, and the, the Violi brothers, uh, Dominic is in a halfway house, the other brothers incarcerated. So is there sort of a, a an open doorway in southern Ontario? Absolutely. And, you know, the, a group like the Hells Angels are probably the biggest criminal organization in the world. So, you know, is, is there opportunity for, you know, a power play, a move? Um, territory and criminal rackets are what the underworld thrives on. So when there is an opportunity to move in and take over, that's typically when you see more violence, uh, murders, bombings, arsons, drive-by shootings. So could that be the direction we're headed? That's, That's a difficult question to answer, but the probability is very high. Well, while they are saying that this is going to be, you know, just a gathering and don't be too worried about it. Don't go anywhere near it, but don't be too worried about it. What can police glean from their surveillance of this? Because I have a feeling they'll be watching. 100%. You know, there's going to be a very high uniform presence. But at the same time, uh, these pro- these events provide very valuable intelligence for, you know, uh, surveillance teams, uh, intelligence officers who may not be readily visible, but will be sort of in the background uh, you know, photographic evidence, videograph- video uh, evidence to just see, you know, it, it, something as simple as, as two bikers shaking hands, you know, from different chapters across 
the country could be could be a significant thing. But the fact that they are going to be so visible, I, I mean, the the chances of any criminality occurring with uh, so many police around is going to be very minimal. Um, you know, they're if they applied what they do in the illegitimate world, these guys uh, to the legitimate world, they probably would be actually pretty successful. Um, so I don't think you're going to see a lot of harm, but I, I do agree that uh, it's probably a good idea just to, for regular pedestrians, for citizens, just to, you know, probably not attend the event. Or go nowhere near it. I mean, Durham, right. Reg- Durham Regional Police Deputy Chief uh, Dean Bertram has been trying to calm some fears among residents, assuring earlier this week that there would be a strong police presence. But he also said that he didn't want to cause any panic by detailing what's expected over the weekend. That doesn't sound very calming to me. Yeah, I think the police are doing it right. Like, you don't want to stir up uh, any fear, hysteria in the community. You know, I think the police, with that heavy police presence, um, I think the number one thing will be probably Highway Traffic Act offenses with with the motorcycles, maybe with license plates. They might be there just to keep the peace because, um, you know, if, if, if everybody's being amenable and they're just going about their way and riding their Harley-Davidson's, you know, not committing any type of provincial or, or criminal offenses, then... You know, I think the best approach is is to have a presence and, you know, to maintain, preserve and keep that public peace and, and public safety, obviously, is paramount. Yeah, I remember several years ago, a big, I think it was Satan's Choice, might have been Hell's Angels. They were meeting up in Niagara Falls, a similar weekend to this one that's going to be held up in Brooklyn. Um, and I remember it mostly because I wound up on the QEW in the middle of the BC chapter arriving. Me and my little Hyundai. And... <laughs> Police were on the overpasses. They had cameras. They were actually in between some of the pillars on those overpasses to get closer photos. Frankly, some were laughing at me being in the middle of all of this. But <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, that's that's a type of the surveillance that they have done in the past. Yeah, 100%. And whether it's mobile or, you know, when, when they get to their final destination, um, you know, that is, it, it does provide an opportunity. And keep in mind, too, you know, the, the bikers do counter surveillance on the police as well. Um, you know, with the technology we have, every, every device that uh, we have, whether it's an iPhone or another type of device, it has recording capabilities. So, you know, that, that also is, is something that, that's sort of their modus operandi as well. But typically, Armed presence is there um, and, and typically in the background um, further away with long lenses, uh, they'll be taking pictures just to, to sort of build their intelligence, intelligence files on on who's who and who's attending. And and who's at what place in the ranking? Yeah, absolutely. Like when you see these rides, uh, when you look at the Hells Angels, you know, they, they really are a paramilitary structure and organization with their ranking system it's it's very similar to you know a military or a, even a c a, a company it's very structured and they do ride in formation of based on you know full patch member you know the sergeant at arms everybody has a place and you mentioned when you were you were stuck in the middle of the bc chapter like you'll typically see uh, especially when they ride in big packs they they will do the speed limit uh, because they, they don't want to get pulled over. They they know the Highway Traffic Act inside and out because they know, especially when they are that visible with their 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 cuts on their back driving Harley-Davidson, that uh, the police are going to be around, uh, especially with these highly publicized events with this memorial run. 
And they're, I guess they're also looking for those subtle clues as to who's on the rise in the organization, who's uh, falling, because as you said, it is very paramilitary in terms of its structure. So there are going to be people who um, give deference to certain members that are on their way up. Yeah, for sure. You know, when you look at uh, groups like uh, Eastern European organized crime, um, let me use the Italian mafia as an example. They, you rarely will you ever see them with tattoos showing what their criminal membership is. You will rarely see, you'll never see an Italian mobster with a leather coat on saying mafia on the back. That just doesn't happen. So when you look at the outlaw motorcycle gang world, they're kind of unique because their uh, their tattoos tell a story. Their tattoos you know, will, will tell basically a criminal story sometimes too. And it also show, you know, the ranking within, within that group. When you see the, the full patch, the top rocker, the bottom rocker is typically you know, where they're from, Ontario. And if you see a biker with a, a full patch, the, the Hells Angels uh, logo in the middle, with the top rock, rocker, bottom rocker, that typically means they are a full patch, full member. And it takes years to get into these organizations from being a hang around, being a prospect, a striker, a probationary member. Uh, typically, if you see uh, someone near the back of the pack with just uh you know, one one rocker on the bottom that means they're typically a probationary member and you can sometimes we'll even see that as part of uh their leather vest mm-hmm. um will there be any undercover officers yeah i think in terms of undercover um you know trying to infiltrate these groups on a grander scale is extremely difficult it's not impossible um but it very very difficult to especially at something like this like it's very difficult to infiltrate these groups and one of the main reasons is um they've when you look at the history of undercovers in canada especially in the united states operatives who have infiltrated these gangs it takes years and they do now these gangs will hire private eyes they do more stringent background checks for prospective members than a legitimate government agency would do so it's you know to get an undercover into these gangs like i said it's not impossible but it's extremely difficult uh this event is going to afford a good opportunity to get some intelligence on a national level being all these chapters from canada congregating um in the greater toronto area and what you're saying about uh, them being very careful and vetting anybody who might even be a prospect for this on the other side of the coin police might be looking for those who are are members of this gang but they're infiltrating their organizations as well. Oh, like, do you mean like an outlaw motorcycle gang member becoming a, a police officer? Absolutely. Oh, for sure. And, you know, being a, a former intelligence sergeant myself, you know, one of the big things with, um, a, as an informant handler and, and dealing with police agents is a lot of times uh, these criminal groups encourage uh, their members to, you know, corrupt somebody because th- this is how organized crime thrives. They look for that little caveat, that little thing that they can they can corrupt somebody. And you know that it has happened before, where people have you know been affiliated with criminal organizations. There were two NYPD detectives back in the seventies and eighties who worked in the New York Police Department in the intelligence intelligence division. And they were, they both had family members in the New York City Mafia and they were, 
you know, shadowing as hitmen for the mob, for the Lucchese crime family. So has that occurred before? Absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, that's typically uh, the, the new modus operandi is to get, you know, somebody that's affiliated with that group that has a clean record. They don't even have a speeding ticket and trying to get them to apply, whether it's a CSIS or, a, a, you know, RCMP job, because they do have that squeaky clean uh, background, 100%. It's fascinating. And we probably will never hear what they actually find out from their surveillance of this event. But it's very interesting. And Steve and I wanted to thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Steve Matelski is a professor of criminal psychology at Mohawk College, also the author of Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to be talking a little bit about the next honor that's going to be uh, bestowed upon the rock group from Hamilton in a couple of minutes. But first, Netflix is trying to find ways to stop people from getting around their fee structure and start paying for the service. You know, sharing passwords. Well, it's great for people. It's not so great for a company that recently reported a loss of about a million subscribers. Here's Jason Nathanson. After last quarter's announcement that Netflix had lost subscribers for the first time ever, news that sent the streaming company's stock tumbling and led to a round of serious layoffs the numbers now out for the second quarter of the year and netflix lost 970,000 subscribers but they expected that number to be 2 million revenue was up about 8 percent over last year and netflix expects to add about a million subscribers next quarter all that made wall street happy where netflix stock was up over seven percent in after hours trading jason nathanson abc news well Netflix is testing out some new methods in some parts of the world, and uh, those methods may be coming to your home. It's also looking at ways of creating some new revenue streams. Here to talk about all of this with us and more is Eric Alper. His website is thatericalper.com. Thanks for joining us, Eric. No problem. Do you understand all of that with the Netflix and, and Wall Street? Because I think what it really just comes down to is just come down to revenues. Because even though that the subscriber amount and the volume dropped their revenues accelerated because they didn't have that much in production um television shows and movies thanks to covid so you know it's so funny where they're like look we're gonna bomb and then five hours later they're like well we didn't bomb so badly and then so now everybody's really happy about it well that's it i mean they, they did lose a million subscribers in the quarter from april to july but that was only a third of what they were bracing for yeah and and now comes the real test because they you know the one thing that netflix has done is they've made enemies with almost every single other streaming service that's out there whether disney plus or or anything else that's out there they've really drawn the line in the sand that they're not going to play well with others which is completely fine it's a business strategy that i that i can respect and and sometimes even get behind but the problem now is that they're on their own um fully and completely so that when and as the world opens up again they're really looking to create more content more television shows in-house create more movies create more documentaries and all of that costs money and certainly they're not going to want to go to that big giant well in the bank account what they're going to do is try to figure out if there is a equal balance of we all know even netflix understands it that you know, there's password sharing, but how much are people willing to spend before they jump 
you know, for good. And that's going to be really fascinating to watch. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, the, the fact that it, they have to get a lot more content out there and it is expensive to do that. That's a big push behind Netflix doing so much production in Canada, in particular in southern Ontario, Toronto, Hamilton and London. Yeah, and that that's going to be really interesting to see what happens when it comes to the actual Canadian content rules and regulations that that the government and 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 there's a bill um, in the House of Commons that uh, require companies like YouTube and Spotify and Netflix to have more Canadian content devoted to it. Um, but you know, does that mean that you know the the Canadian division of Netflix is going to have a separate? Um, you know, a, a separate revenue stream uh, that they can pull from. And then what does that say about, you know, El Salvador or the Dominican Republic or um, or the UK or Germany where, you know, they the successes of foreign based shows that are on Netflix, you know, something like um, like Squid Game is very rare as much as we all love to think that, you know, we're all one world and one people. We're kind of not. And sometimes things have a way of of breaking big, but it's only one or two a year. And so does Netflix create programming specifically for a, a, a very small country like Canada in order to help build more revenue in that country? Or do they just hope that maybe tackling $3 on your monthly bill now you can share your password with three or four other people. Is that going to be enough? It's all it's it's all stuff that does, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just they're just going to have to trial and error this thing through. Well, that extra charge if you want to share your password is something that they are testing in South America right now. I think it's as you mentioned, like between two and three bucks, um, and you know that's not really a lot, although they have been hiking their fees over the last couple of years. And that may be one of the reasons why they're losing subscribers. Exactly. And they know who's watching. They have IP addresses. They've never acknowledged how they know what you're watching and how long you're watching. Certainly, they've never acknowledged any sort of satellite or GPS that is connected to your device. Um, that's that's information that is you know that is secret, and and all companies have that kind of stuff. They know who the serial abusers are. They know who has shared their password with 15 or 20 other people. They're not really going after somebody who has shared their network's password with a parent who lives away from them or is on travel um, away from them for maybe a month or so. They're not really worried about that. They're worried about the people who, you know, are real, you know, sticklers when it comes to actually paying for it. And and the entire community, it seems, is on one password. But what's going to be wild to watch is they're going to get it wrong with the wrong person. And that person is going to go on social media and start a whole big campaign of like, how dare they call me a thief? How dare they not listen to me? And it's going to look really bad because as we've seen, and I'm sure that you've talked about it on the show, it doesn't matter how many followers you have on social media. It's very easy to start a giant fire with just a little bit of spark. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Netflix has kind of ticked off some of its competitors. That's n- Maybe a good, maybe a bad thing, who knows, but um, they're going to be watching this very closely. Those other competitors are going to watch and see how this rolls out, this test in South America, about adding a couple of bucks if you're going to share the password. But Netflix is also setting up an ad-based, lower-cost subscription. 
Yeah, somebody has to be the first to try it. And and what Spotify has taught people and other companies is that they will, in fact, pay for content as long as you keep updating that content, even if that content is user generated. Spotify actually doesn't create anything. It's all based on the artists and podcasters uh, that are doing it for them. So Netflix has taken a look at the Spotify ones and said, okay, well, X amount of people have left the platform for a cheaper version of it, but they get ads. So how many, how much revenue is lost there? But then how much revenue is actually generated based on selling advertising? And it's probably not that much in terms of ads that are being generated. They've looked at YouTube for the same reason. So now Netflix is going to have to be the leader when it comes to Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and the rest of those TV and movie streaming services. Um, and to to kind of lead the way um, for the projection to say this is how much you can expect to lose with every single ad you run, with every 30-second spot you run, with every dollar you increase. They have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars every single year with marketing cases and marketing research. They know exactly, I think, how many how much revenue they could lose, or at least how many subscribers they, they could lose with every 30 second spot that they put in between that show that you're watching. So it's just a matter of getting that proof uh, when they start putting it into practice. Yeah, the, the proof is in the pudding because I yeah. mean, one of the cool things about Netflix that made you want to buy the subscription was that it didn't have ads. Yeah. And, and you know what? The truth be told, People are liars. If they're sitting in a marketing room, they don't want to come across as cheap or, you know, poor. So maybe those people aren't being so truthful when they say, oh, I would never leave Netflix no matter how many ads are on there, you know. But meanwhile, they absolutely will when you get them in that quiet moment. Maybe that $3 really truly does add up month after month and it's $36 a month to some people. That's like, you know, the, the rising cost in groceries or the rising cost in gas, um, you know, that could be, um, you know, the start of something bigger. So, yeah, it, 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 you know, when people start to predict sometimes what could happen, they're even taking that with a little bit of grain and salt. But at least they have a direction that they can go into. We're speaking with Eric Alper, music journalist. His website is thatericalper.com. We heard yesterday that uh, our Kells are going to be getting the Alan Slate Music Impact Honor at Canada's Walk of Fame Gala later this year uh, in recognition of their positive impact on others and contributions to the community. Anybody who is familiar with our Kells knows that is so true and so well-deserved. Yeah, especially because they're one of the bands that has um, happily and gleefully and respectively picked up the mantle that artists like the Tragically Hip and Blue Rodeo uh, have led the way for for their generations. They have the most loyal fan base. They are incredibly generous with their time um, when the band wants to do something and, and give their time to play benefit concerts or a dollar for every ticket that goes to various community events. Um, they are a hugely positive, impactful band. Um, and uh, personally, I adore them. I, 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 you know, you like to say, what took them so long? But, you know, it's just great to know that they're, finally being recognized for their not just their music but the fact that they're great people and 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 fun human beings too yeah i love that they not only write about social consciousness they live it too but they're not preachy about it it's just like you know what this is the right thing and that's what we're gonna do yeah and and you know and even even if they 
even if you say to them, well, you're not really taking a stance on something politically. Maybe you're not taking advantage of your audience to get them to motivate for them to do something controversial. They may not want to be that band. They just might want to be the group that has really great small acts that add up to a big difference that concentrate locally and then go nationally with the things that people can't disagree with, with like, you know, upgrading a basketball court, who would ever be against that? And maybe you don't look to them for creating those controversial statements. Maybe you just look to them as having really great music and being really good people and um, doing the things that sometimes politicians should be doing on our behalf. Well, one of the things I was thinking about was that on their recent swing on tour down into the United States, just after uh, the Roe versus Wade rollback came out, they just stood on stage and Max was saying, you know what, we believe in a woman's right to choose. You don't like it. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is we're living in a very distinct era in the last 18 months where I think artists are finally okay with leaving money on the table and using their voice, knowing that they could be ending up with, you know, a lesser audience or dividing their audience even further. Um, And it's strange because you would think, well, if you go to a Bruce Springsteen show, you probably have a very basic idea about where his politics lie and who he's going to vote for in the U.S. president uh, election. But there are still audience members who just want people to shut up and sing. The fact is that we've certainly seen, especially during the Roe v. Wade situation, artists like Adele and Pink and Lord, and it seems like every female or woman or gender fluid performer is standing up for those rights for women as a human right and as a medical right. Um, and it's something that it's, it's amazing to see because I don't think there's a fear in the industry anymore as much as there was maybe even five years ago. I've seen it. I've seen it every day where I work in the industry. You have 16-year-olds that are uh, that are proclaiming more and more what they stand for when record labels and booking agents and managers would be like, please don't do this now get your audience and then you can kind of bring them along for the journey these artists right now they're starting out they're like proclaiming who they are and having the music affect that well this is part of what has been a pretty incredible year for arkells i mean touring again release of blink one blink two is coming out in september gray cup halftime show this year's junos where they performed and they were group of the year this just (laughs) it just seems to continue on the roll Losing your luggage and then performing anyway and going viral on TikTok. Yeah, not bad for not bad for a band in a in a country where like for almost half the year we were still in isolation. Well, yeah, like the the Flatten the Curve project that was yeah. able to bring music to a lot of people. Um and you know, they just wound up also raising fifty thousand dollars for the Food Bank of Canada. Yeah, yeah. So good. So <laughs> right, you you just and and you said at the top of your show, if you don't like the Arkells, that's on you. That's not that's not on them. So something else I wanted to get uh, your reaction to, because it was one of those news releases that came out that kind of surprised me. It was a. Uh, well, this hasn't happened already. In fact, I actually thought at first that it was David Foster was going to be included in Canada's Walk of Fame. But that already happened in 2002. He's going to be added to the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. How has this not happened before? I think a large part of it, when things like this happen, 
it comes down to the availability of the person that is getting recognized. And sometimes when people say, how is it that so-and-so isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or here in Canada on the Walk of Fame? Um, primarily, it's just based on the on the person's schedule of whether or not if they can show up due to touring, um, you know, David Foster and Catherine McPhee, his wife Foster, um, you know, they have very small children maybe they couldn't get away um sometimes it's just right time right moment right greatest hits album coming out that they can um promote at the same time but yeah you know long overdue for david foster who is absolutely one of this country's greatest singer songwriters yeah i mean you know he does have a few awards a few accolades Maybe this one was just sort of overlooked and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's about time we did that one. Yeah, especially because, you know, sometimes people don't think about you as what you think of yourself, meaning that David Foster is a great producer. He's a great arranger. Sometimes people don't think of him as a songwriter. Um, and certainly he's had, you know, plenty of hits going from, you know, all of the, you know, hey, look, he's won 16 Grammy Awards, you know, and so now he's being inducted with, you know, Brian Adams and Jim Valance. You know, how is Brian Adams on there? How is Alanis Morissette, who's also being recognized this year, but maybe it's, you know, right time, right moment, right day off in the schedule for her to come on up uh and come to and come to toronto because she's really been on tour or been at home with her family during covid well and for events like this you know you don't want to like give away the whole farm right away you need that next one that's going to come down the pike to keep people interested (laughs) you're always you're always looking forward to the future to see what else is next that's for sure i have one more question about uh the arkells when are they going to be on saturday night live Oh, that is a golden question, you know, and it's one I know for a fact that Lauren Michaels has thought about. He's the the creator and the the executive producer of SNL. Um, certainly, they warrant it. They have a good enough audience. Certainly, uh, as big, if not bigger, some in some places in the U.S. than the Tragically Hip did. Um, maybe they're just writing for again the right moment, the right host. Maybe a, a Canadian host um, to kind of put their stamp of approval, like Dan Aykroyd did for the Tragically Hip. But they should absolutely be on there. And who would, you know? Who knows? Maybe even see Max and the guys basically get in a, in a sketch, too. What a wonderful way to like introduce a band like that to the rest of America. Absolutely. I mean, I remember seeing, I think it was a, a Max Kerman uh, tweet, say, there was some group that was not going to be able to perform in this last season because uh, some members had come down with COVID. And he's like, hey, we're healthy, we're vaccinated, and we're available. <laughs> we're available. The car is all filled up and ready to go. Yeah, because I could easily see them being part of some of the, uh, the the skits and sketches of the show because they've got a great sense of humor and they're just sort of up for it. Absolutely. And they look great on television. They <laughs> look great. They would dress well. They have no problem making fun of themselves and, and, and other people that it's okay to do it. They'd be wonderful on that program. It, it, it would probably be nothing better than to cap off an amazing 2022 with appearing on SNL this year. Absolutely. Maybe we can cycle back to something you were talking about earlier, uh, about uh, it wouldn't take much to uh, create a controversy for Netflix and uh, and have something trend on Twitter. Maybe we can do that with the Arkells. Absolutely. Let's go do it. Absolutely. We'll Eric, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. We'll definitely talk soon enough. Absolutely. Eric Alper is a music journalist. His website is thatericalper.com. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.